Welcome to podcast number 11 from ministrytochildren.com. My name is Tony Coomer, and today I'll be talking with Amy Fenton Lee on the topic of autism and children's ministry. Now, Amy, if you guys remember, uh, uh, she was our podcast guest number one, and with, to date that has been probably the most popular conversation we've had. So I wanted to bring Amy back and get into some more specific topics related to special needs and children's ministry. So, Amy, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Tony. Well, Amy, let's just get into this. I need a definition of autism. So how would you define autism? It's hard to define autism, first of all, um, and I would be careful how I defined it. I, I feel like you probably need to always try to stay close to a, a, a medically accurate definition um, when you try to offer a definition. So I've actually gone to about.com, and about.com has a section called special needs children. And they define every special needs, relatively common special needs diagnosis in um, layman's terms, but also using the corrective vernacular. And so I've gone there to actually get the definition. Um, and I'm not going to read the whole definition to you, but I will read a couple of phrases. And the autism spectrum disorders um, are a range of neurological disorders that most markedly involve some degree of difficulty with communication and interpersonal relationships, as well as obsessions and repetitive behaviors. As the term spectrum indicates, there can be a wide range of effects. Um, and I want to say that just if you see an individual who has um, an obsession or a repetitive uh, behavior or struggles with interpersonal relationships, that does not mean that person has um, autism. Um, or at some point in time, we probably all would, um, would have that definition. So you have to be really careful. But getting the diagnosis of autism is always requires someone with um, a very skilled degree. Uh, it, in order to get the diagnosis, you usually have to go to a, neuro, a neuropsychiatrist, a neuropsychologist. I may, they may even be saying that uh, incorrectly, but it, it, it takes someone very skilled to assign the diagnosis. As a result, it's hard to give a simple definition for it. Um, but usually the, the, um, the diagnosis is, is processed through behaviors, and you start to see some behaviors um, that indicate someone is, is, is different, is different, and eventually that may lead a person to get the autism diagnosis. Um, so, and I do want to say that there are different components uh, to autism, such as sensory integration disorder. You might hear that, pervasive developmental disorder. Um, if you're assigned that diagnosis, that does not necessarily mean you have autism in a traditional sense. Um, but they they are they are diagnoses and characteristics that can be associated with autism and can be on the spectrum. That's why you'll hear people often refer to a child as having a spectrum disorder rather than autism, just because it, there's such a wide range of how that diagnosis can affect an individual. Now, just listening to your definition there with my um, kids' pastor ears on, I heard two things. Um, regarding behavior that really caught my attention, the social interactions and the impulses. And I'm just imagining teaching children's church, and um, I'm imagining children with these kind of struggles in my group. Uh, what are some maybe typical 
problems or challenges that might come out of that? that uh, well, a child with autism may uh, be a very literal learner. And so as a result, if you were to use a catchphrase or a slang term as a part of your teaching, the child that is a literal learner would interpret that differently. So in other words, if you're trying to make a point, and I'm, I'm having a hard time coming up with an example right off the bat, but right off the bat, hey, there you go. <laughs> um, if you were to say right off the bat, um, you know, a literal learner is looking for a bat. They're looking, where's the bat? And they miss the point you're trying to trying to make. Um, at the same time, in order to, for instance, if a child is maybe uh, misbehaving and you need to correct the child, you have to be very literal. You know, stop doing that may not be enough uh, instruction. It may be stop picking at your neighbor's hair. You know, you, you have to be very, your teaching has to be very concrete. If you were to talk about um, wanting to accept Jesus into your heart, that is not going to relay well to a child who is a literal learner because they're trying to figure out how in the world I'm going to have to have surgery. You know, they're thinking about heart surgery. I don't want Jesus to come into my heart because I know somebody who had open heart surgery. So um, that's probably one of the most visible or big ways that as a children's pastor you need to be aware of is that whether it's in the form of correction, stop bothering your neighbor, or how am I going to relay this Bible principle oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes children with a spectrum disorder, they are literal learners. Well, that reminds me of an example. There's a little girl in our ministry, and uh, she's one of my favorite people in the world. Let me just say that. But she has some of these characteristics, um, and her diagnosis has changed over the years, depending on which specialists they've seen. But one thing that I really sticks out to me is we were talking about covered in the blood. There are some Bible verses that talk about the blood of Jesus cleansing us from sins. And then there's some stuff in the Old Testament regarding the Passover. And she had a story Bible that showed the, the Israelites putting the blood on the doorposts. And then she was thinking back to the Bible verse she had learned about being covered in the blood or washed in the blood of Jesus. And she got on this kick where for a couple months she was just always talking about the blood of Jesus, and in her mind, it was some kind of horror movie experience. Exactly. And she didn't seem real upset about it, but she, I could tell she was by – she was always mentioning anything. Is that where Jesus' blood covers us over? You know, And it was, kind of, it was kind of disturbing, and it made me realize there's so much of this imagery in the Bible that is – if you take it overly literal, um, it gets very confusing for some kids. Um, I, I do want to point out that just because a child is a very literal learner does not mean that the child has um, has autism or even characteristics of autism. Um, one thing I, I've, I've learned since since writing on this topic and teaching it and, and really incorporating the ideas into my own teaching as a volunteer in children's ministry is um, if you will assume in every environment that you have at least one very literal learner who has a hard time um, learning it has a hard time making a, making an accurate interpretation from the imagery you speak of, Tony, and you work it into going the extra mile to explain the Bible story or or even explain um, in just simple instruction. You will always have more children who benefit from that. There's always a number of children who maybe don't have a diagnosis that are more literal learners 
um, even at ages older than what you would think. I mean, it's easy to say a four-year-old's a literal learner, but oftentimes you still have fifth graders and sixth graders that need you to, to help make that image, help them really understand what the imagery of the Bible means, just like you just talked about. Yeah, and that's great advice for any teacher, and I think, and I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because there always are a broad range. Um, you know, you learn all these developmental categories in college or seminary or whatever your background and training is. You get all these developmental stages, but the fact is those things are are like shotgun. I mean, it's it's everywhere depending on where a child's at. So those are helpful guidelines, but then you say, oh, yeah, I do have some older kids who their first thought when you say something is to imagine it as a picture, you know. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you got to you got to be careful with that. Well, let's talk about another common situation that I've heard about in different churches. What if you think a child um, in your ministry has some of these behaviors, but the parents have never said anything to you about them, and it's a situation where you uh, would you recommend that parent uh, have the child tested, or would you would you, how would you raise those behaviors with the parent? That is a um, a very good question, and. Probably the most common issue I hear of from children's pastors is how do we handle a situation where a child is exhibiting behaviors that are sometimes associated with a special needs diagnosis? Um, how do we how do we have this discussion with the parents? Um, you have to be very careful, and the 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 general thought is that you do not approach parents about the, a possible special needs diagnosis. That that it will very rarely be received well. And so it, you would, it's just best for the church staff, the volunteer, not ever to say to a parent, hey, we think your kid might have autism or I think your child might have ADHD. You know, it's, it's just best for the parent, the, the church to avoid um, approaching a parent in that regard. Um, now, if the child has behaviors that are becoming disruptive or they are, um, they're, they're, they become a problem, whether that means that the other children in the class are not learning or if maybe a child is jeopardizing his own safety or the safety of the volunteers, then obviously you do need to have a discussion with the parents. But the discussion always needs to center around the concerning behavior, not a potential diagnosis. So what you may say is, We've noticed that Timmy, um, whenever we go out to the playground, Timmy seems agitated and he always tries to run off. Um, and he does not want to stay inside the gates of the, pl- of, of, of the playground. He keeps trying to run off. Well, bolting, children who bolt, that is sometimes a, a behavior that's associated with autism. If a child struggles any time during a transition or they're angry in an environment, sometimes you'll see... Um, children run off, and it, it can be more common um, among children with, with autism. Well, you would not go to the parent and say, did you know that bolting can be associated with autism, and we think that Timmy might have autism. You should never, never, never say that. You would say, we're concerned for Timmy's safety. He keeps running off. And then you would say, tell us what works for you, because you you can you can assume that Timmy's probably tried to run off from mom and dad too since now he's tried to run off from your volunteers three weeks in a row. You wouldn't go the first week it's happened. You would wait after you have a pattern of behavior. Um, but you can assume possibly he's done the same thing with mom and dad. How did they handle that? Or why is he running off? Or 
um, he seems to hit, maybe it's a different behavior, maybe he gets agitated and he hits his neighbor in his classroom. Um, oftentimes there is a reason for that and you can, you can get to the bottom of that with the help of the parents, but the conversation you have with the parents needs to center on, number one, the problematic behavior itself, and number two, driving it to a solution. What's the solution? I want to quote Cynthia Zierhut, and she is a clinical psychologist with the Mind Institute at uh, UC Davis, University of California, Davis. She's one of my favorite sources to use because she's the founder of the Champion Special Needs Ministry for Capital Christian Center in Sacramento. Um, she, her whole life, her whole job, her livelihood centers around diagnosing children with neurological disorders. Her specialty is autism diagnosis. Um, their church has 70 children that attend on any given Sunday with, with autism. So as a result, the people in their church are very familiar with autism. And she shares that um, sometimes a child who's not a part of the special needs ministry, let's just, let's, I'm going to make this up, let's just say it's a typical second grader has been acting up or doing something different consistently, and the Sunday school teacher may say, hey, Dr. Zierhut, we know that you're an expert in this. Come watch this kid in Sunday school. She may quietly go observe the child and help the teachers, you know, respond to the behavior. But she said she would never, even with her credentials, ever go to the parents or suggest that the teacher themselves go to their parents and say, did you know that your child is exhibiting behaviors that could be associated with a diagnosis? She said, you have to be so careful because um, as soon as you start a discussion like that, you really risk losing the family. Um, and sometimes, not always, but sometimes the parents are aware of the problems and they either are making the decision not to disclose it or possibly one, if not both, of the parents are not ready to really embrace the idea their child may have a special needs diagnosis. And so it's the church's job to walk alongside the family, meeting their spiritual needs, and keeping them engaged in the church, um, and not always being the one to point out, hey, your kid's got a diagnosis. And I love what you said there um, about focusing on behaviors and not labels, because that's so important. And I love that just the the realization that we're not experts, um, and even people who are experts, they don't want to go there. And there's been times in my ministry where, where parents have come to me and asked me, hey, do you know anything about autism because our child is doing this or doing that? And even in that situation, I would say, look, I'm, I've noticed some of the same behaviors too. Kids behave differently each week. Why don't you look up some symptoms online? Why don't you talk to your pediatrician? Um, you know, because because I'm not a medical doctor, and I love the approach that you just laid out. Well, let's move on to another question. What if a parent uh, in your ministry comes to you and says that their child does have autism, and they begin to make suggestions about different things in the children's ministry and how you might change it around, uh, but then over time these requests get bigger and bigger, and you feel like they're putting a lot of pressure on your volunteers to maybe go get some kind of specialized training or reorient uh, every single Sunday school class around uh, these different uh, special needs this child might have. How would you approach that situation in a church? Good, very good question. And I think the vast majority of special needs champions in churches have, deal with this issue on a day-in, day-out basis. Um, 
the children's pastors who are who are learning how to better accommodate and and reach out to the families with, uh, with that are affected by special needs as well as the volunteers who are becoming experienced in this area they know that there is a there is a delicate balance that the church has to to walk um, for example the the children's ministry team wants to ask questions of the parents about the, about the child as soon as a parent comes and says hey my child has xyz diagnosis and we'll just say for the sake of this conversation, it's Asperger's, or maybe it's even pervasive developmental disorder. Both are mild um, spectrum disorders. And in both cases, most of the time, the child is going to want to be fully included in the ministry. In other words, they're not going to want to be in a self-contained special needs classroom, although that, that's different for every child. But So the parent may say, hey, our child doesn't like it when you use symbols in, in during the worship, during the, um, you know, uh, dur- during some part of the worship, or they don't like this, or can we change this around? I think that when y- the church and the children's ministry can make those changes, and it doesn't really affect anybody, you-, you should try. And I and I think that the children's ministry, whoever's representing the children's ministry, whether it's a volunteer or the special needs champion or the children's pastor, should ask questions like. Um, Hey, tell us about the child's IEP or individualized education plan. Tell us what works for your child at school because possibly, possibly we can emulate, we can mirror some of the things that are being done there um, and, and make sure that he's getting a chance to learn. He's happier. When he's happier, his behavior is better. It benefits everybody when it's going well. But... At the same time, the church needs to be careful that they're always keeping things to a level where the volunteers can actually be successful. And so if you ever hear the term, for instance, applied behavioral analysis, a lot of times churches are being asked to reinforce um, ABA methods or intervention techniques that are being used on a child when they're in therapy or when they're in school. Um, and I understand the parents' reasoning in this is they want um, they want church to continue um, continue taking the child in the same path of, of of development of growth. But you have to be careful because once you start putting those kind of expectations on your volunteers, you're going to have a really hard time keeping your volunteers because sometimes doing those things requires extra training on their part, more patience, maybe more planning. You know, I heard a consultant recently suggest that um, for a child, to pre- in order to, to prepare a child to come into Sunday school each Sunday, maybe the volunteer needed to call the child every Saturday night and go over the schedule for Sunday morning with, w- with the child so that the child is better prepared. I think that's a great idea, but you have to think about your volunteer. Is that something, does that volunteer feel called um, and is it reasonable to ask them, hey, you have a heart for this child. Would you mind calling every Saturday night? On the other hand, maybe that is something that would be hard for that volunteer to do. Um, you have to kind of, you have to balance out the calling of your ministry, including the calling of your specific volunteers. And sometimes it's okay and it's best for the children's pastor or the special needs champion to say, hey, we can't do that. Here's what we can do. But always remember that the children's ministry volunteers, they're good-hearted lay people. And when you can get somebody with a therapy background or a special education background to be on the volunteer team, that's a bonus.
But oftentimes, they're doing that all week long. They need to, they want to serve in a different area on the weekend. And it's your more typical person, not from special education world, who's, who's serving in the special needs ministry. And you want to make sure that you're keeping um, their expectations in line with what they can actually do successfully. So sometimes it is best to say, here's what we can do, here's what we can't do. And our goal as a church is to always provide safe and loving care. That's, that's the bottom line. We always want to do that. When we can, we want to advance the spiritual development of the person affected by special needs. But there are certain things that we are not trained in, and we can't do right now. And so sometimes you just have to think about those things and temper the requests of parents or the advisements of consultants and keep in mind what is your ministry called to do and what is it capable of doing. And Amy, I love that you made that distinction between uh, the school and the church because I think a lot of times people bring the expectations of uh, the parents where they go to school and the children uh, mandated by law um, have special special arrangements and those expectations sometimes come to the church as a children's pastor in a small church especially we just don't have the resources that even our local elementaries do and and I have some key people with special education backgrounds so we're super blessed here but I don't think it's we just can't provide everything that everybody would like um, and to to pressure those volunteers would would be harmful to the ministry as a whole Churches are not tax-supported entities, and so sometimes when you have a child who needs one-on-one care, they get that in the, in the school system because the school system can afford to pay for that, and while that's ideal in the, church, in the church setting, sometimes it just isn't possible, or a person has been specially trained uh, because they have been paid for, to have, the school system has paid for the very specialized training, and obviously... Most churches, the vast majority of churches, cannot afford, um, you know, to foot the bill for some of those things. So you do have to kind of keep in mind the church is the church, the school is the school, and there are some ways that the two can learn from each other, but there are differences. None of this diminishes the love we have for every child at the church. It's just the realization that we can't do everything that we wish we could. Well, and you know what I want to point out? I want to take this chance to point out that there are sometimes that the church can't perfectly accommodate a situation. And over and over again, when I interview parents who are affected by special needs, they're more interested in hearing the heart of the, of the children's pastor or of the church pastor when they're, when they're in discussing the issue. Maybe, they're, maybe the child is exhibiting violent behavior in the church, and it's, it's become, and this is very, very rare, but when it, on the occasion it does happen, How's the church responding to this? Are they saying, take your child and leave? Or are they saying, how can we minister to you? Can we bring, until um, the child starts feeling comfortable coming to church and, and therefore their behavior gets better because they're more comfortable being there, can we bring the children's ministry lesson to you each week? How can we make sure your other children are being included? How can we, um, can we, make sure that there's women who are connecting with you, Mom, or Dad, how can we get you involved in a discipleship group? You know, they're looking, they're thinking outside the box. And while maybe the avenue they're not pursuing, that they're currently pursuing with the accommodation of, of the single child, they're having trouble with that. But if the church is asking the question, how can we still include your family in this church? How can you be a part of our 
our family of believers and how can we minister to you, that family, they're going to have a very different response and they're going to be, um, they're going to feel good even if they're having to wrestle through hard things like the child's not happy at church, it's not going well. But if the, the church is still asking questions, how can we bring church to you? How can we stay involved in your life? You know, then, then the church is doing the right thing. Well, I appreciate that, and that's a that's a good place to leave that topic. And I want to move on to one more area, uh, in the area of policy. And I know most people in children's ministry are very aware of how important it is to have policies in place. And uh, you know, obviously, there's some overkill, but in general, you need to have policies for your nursery, your children's church, all kinds of different policies you need to have in place. Uh, one question I'd like to ask, though, is should you have a, a behavior guideline specific for the special needs ministry? Um, good, very good question. I, I think special needs ministries often have, um, it's good for them to have their own sort of set of policies, but behavior policies must never be isolated to just special needs. Whatever your behavior policy is for special needs must be identical to and also stated in your typical children's ministry manual. Um, and let me, let me explain this. Um, I'm familiar with a church who has a different snack policy for their special needs, um, for their special needs classrooms and their special needs participants than they do their typical. For, um, so, for example, uh, the regular second grade Sunday school class gets Ritz crackers every Sunday morning. But if your child comes into the special needs ministry, they would say, we do not provide any Ritz crackers. Any snack that your child would have, you need to bring from home, or maybe we don't even offer snacks at all. And the reason is because uh, the special needs population tends to have a higher, um, a higher rate of, of unusual dietary needs or, or allergies. There's sometimes being exposed to a Ritz cracker inside the special needs population can have a negative effect. So you can have those differing policies, but you would not have in the special needs manual um, no kicking, biting, screaming, and or kicking, biting, physical things. I'm not sure screaming was one, but you could say that. Um, you wouldn't have those policies outlined with, okay, here's what we do when those things happen in the special needs manual and not have it in the typical. Um, that could be considered discrimination. Uh, legally, it's not been challenged that I'm aware of inside the church, although there's been some borderline court cases certainly one in Minnesota where a church was accused of discrimination. And so you've got to be really careful that you apply standards um, equally across your typical ministry as well as your special needs. But there's another benefit to always making sure that it's in both, uh, both manuals or maybe it's the same manual, is that there are children that are participating in um, typical programming that have behavior issues uh, that are the same as the ones who have the identified diagnoses. So you need to have very explicit instructions such as the no, no hitting, no running, very basic things that sometimes would be considered, um, you know, a foregone conclusion, like we would just have those expectations. Those do need to be stated explicitly in a manual so that for the sake of the children, the parents, and the volunteers, everyone could know when this happens, that's not acceptable, um, your third time that you do whatever it is, that the parents are then pulled in and asked to help in the Sunday school room or the, the behavior is, is addressed. And you want to show that that's done equally 
uh, in a special needs versus typical population and that the issue is behavior. It is not associated with the diagnosis. So for the, the sake of having good relationships with everybody, for not discriminating, you just need to be careful and make sure whatever policy you set is for the most part, you know, aside from the example of the snack policy, um, but especially when it gets into the touchy behavior, that it is a uniform policy between both the typical children's ministry and the special needs. Well, that's a good insight, and thanks so much for, for making me aware of that because we haven't really thought through to have um, a special manual for that because uh, in, in my church we have all the kids together. There's no uh, individualized uh, special needs ministry, although we're aware of, of some situations. But that's you a- wouldn't need. But Tony, that's a great that's a great thing. You don't need a special needs manual, but you do need in your typical manual. You need pick, pick five rules, six rules, basics. You know, when we touch each other, we have appropriate touch, or it's not kicking. Some very basic behaviors. Pick five five basics and mm-hmm. put that in your manual, and then are, you're you're prepared. You're there. You're done. That's great. Well, Amy, I just want to thank you again for uh, taking the time to talk with me today. I always learn so much from you, and I learn so much from your blog, theinclusivechurch.wordpress.com. And looking forward to seeing you in July in Lexington, Kentucky, for the. Children's Ministry Expo Special Needs Mini Conference. The children, yeah, I was trying to get the name right. Uh, the thing in Lexington, we're all going to. Everybody cool is going to be there anyway. And now you've got a special needs ministry conference there, which is a great opportunity for the price of this thing. It's like twenty five dollars. Twenty five dollars. You can bring volunteers and get several different sessions then on special needs ministry. It's a great value. I don't, I don't know anything like it really, except of course your blog, which is free to read every day. So very good. Amy, thanks so much for taking the time. Well, thanks for having me.